could there ever be such a thing as too much Jonathan? I mean, obviously not, right? Especially not if the Jonathan in question is Jonathan Puddle and you've got what we call Jonathan squared. When Jonathan Puddle was in the house, literally in my house a few months ago, what a delightful human being he is. Uh, he's lovely. We had the best possible time. I can't commend his books and his podcast, The Podcast, uh, more highly to you. Uh, so, so sweet to get to spend a few days uh, with him here with me in Indiana. While he was here, I had already scheduled a conversation with our friend, Dr. Brad Jerzak, who's a great friend of this podcast, one of our most popular and beloved guests. Uh, we had just such a such a wonderful conversation on this new book. I'm going to say more to set that up in a couple moments. Uh, so I'll let that be what it is. I'll just say for now, language conversation around deconstruction has gotten so cluttered. And I feel like this conversation is tender and fierce and clarifying in all the right ways. And I hope it speaks to you. I think the book will really speak to you. Uh, so thanks for hanging around. Uh, any way that you can like, review, share, all the things helps. Those of you who give on Patreon, thank you, thank you, thank you for making this possible. Um, got so much content right now I've been excited to share. And this is one of the things from the last few months that I thought was especially special. And I've just been eager for you to step into this room with us into this conversation, knowing none of this is abstract, that this is very much this um, conversation about disentangling belief and what that looks like. This is the journey so many of us are living on so many levels. So uh, let's jump right in with Jonathan Puddle and Brad Jerzak. Let's go. I can't think of anybody whose theology has informed me more. And in that really wonderful way, and this is not like that, you know, weird way when you're saying like your own theology is good or something. It, no, it's that way that Brad's always the person that this sort of deepest, most intuitive experiences of God that you don't have language for. It's like you you write something, whenever I hear you talk about it's like, oh, that that's it. That's it. That's the thing that I knew, but didn't know how to put my finger on and couldn't have expressed. It's like you expressed with revelatory clarity. And um, so I really can't say enough about uh, beyond your friendship, just how much your work and your wisdom continue to impact my journey. Well, I don't even know what to say. Thank you. How about that? And I echo that. Exactly. That's that's, that's the Brad Josek experience for us is, oh, Oh, that's what that's called. Yeah. Huh. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yes. Now I can take a deep breath and now I can now I can keep going. And and you're uh, I gotta get you to tell my wife this. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, mutually on that point. Uh, we'll happily write letters of recommendation. <laughs> 
and you do it with such humility, Brad. Yes, like, like yes. that's what I what I love is that you you lay out this this audaciously beautiful truth mm-hmm. that resonates with every part of my soul, and then you tack on something like, or at least that's what makes sense to me. Mm. <laughs> and mm. I'm like, well, well, okay, then me too. Mm. <laughs> it's also not to just because uh, uh, the goal, of Brad, is not to embarrass you. But one of the things I love when you know, John, that's so true about. Brad's voice being uh, such a tender voice, not just wise, but but tender. One of the things I find most interesting, and this has been true about the podcast we've done, because we've talked about big stuff, hell and judgment and atonement and you know all the big ideas. I don't know anybody else who I feel like is able to talk about these things that also, of course, are deeply held beliefs of mine now, but where people are less defensive. It's like, you, I feel like Brad is the person who gets the shields down. Like anybody else who's going to like to say some of the things that we talk about, uh, folks are going to kind of like have dukes up with Brad, even if they're not, even if they're not convinced, even if they're not sure, it's like, ah. especially if they had some experience of, of Jesus, then it's like, oh, I kind of recognize that voice. I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think, I mean, you know, we've both been reading uh, your, you know, your new book today, and I, and I had a a profound encounter with the spirit, mm. and and part of the reason I think right off the bat is you start this book, you know, w- without any rah rah cheerleading for deconstruction. Quite the opposite. You're you you know you tell a devastating story mm. about your life. And I mean, I, and I saw myself in those pages, and I saw mm. a lot of people I know in those pages, and the sacredness. Yeah. Of like this is this can be a horror, this yep. can be a devastating experience to have your faith foundation suddenly begin to crumble mm. due to no action or fault of your own. Uh, and we can talk about this in so many different ways as you lay out, right? Like we, we we're going to come to a lot of different aspects of this mm-hmm. as you do in the book, but to start with this very sacred, uh, stable. Before we say anything, let's talk about the trauma and the pain yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. And you didn't have to do that, I don't think, but you did. Mm. And, it, and it, it's a beautiful place to start. Well, yeah, and I did need, I felt the need to. And and also, you know, part of it, you know, Jonathan comes from here too, the, the, the tall Jonathan, uh, where we, there are aspects where it was through a fault of my own, you know, like mm. my responses to the trauma around me um, yeah. caused trauma to others. And then I can't, I have to lay awake at night remembering those aspects and knowing mm. that uh, I've not, you know, that there's harm done in these journeys too. And that I'm complicit in that. And it's like, but I, I would crawl in a hole and never say anything again. That would be safer. Uh, except that I do feel an obligation to pay forward the mercy that was shown me. Yeah, that that's my only qualification. Actually, is is that um, the people who came and walked with me uh, were just so incredibly kind, mm. and and if uh, I'll I'll pay that forward until someone disqualifies me, I guess. Um, but I did my best to disqualify me, so <laughs> here we are. Well, it. Um, I love how you how you said that, Brad. I mean, because I think that's part of the for me is the power of this book is that um, the D word, as you say, and um, and I know we've had some conversations even in this space before, but uh, about language, words that we use. I'm kind of, of course, I'm with you in terms of 
deconstruction has understandably at this point kind of become the catch-all word that people know generally what you mean when you say it. So like, I like how you both parse that and uh, critique that a bit, but also like, okay, yeah, we're starting from this premise of this journey of deconstruction. But I feel like it's so important, the work that you're doing here in terms of the conversations about deconstruction so weirdly can become detached in this sense of like, I don't know, we're like, we're not being deconstructed. We're not taking ourselves apart. We're not like pulling those threads. So the way that you thread the needle in terms of talking about your own experience, um, experiencing harm, uh, feeling responsibility, like all that stuff is part of what makes this so compelling because it's like, it's so strange to me sometimes, even though I do it too, the way we can kind of cut ourselves, like our deep selves off from yeah. this conversation where like, it's like this very cerebral thing. So I love that, that the, that the book starts in a very rawly personal way. Yeah. There's um, you know, you do have this, this spectrum, right? So I, I've been thinking about it that way on one end of the spectrum. I did experience what we've called deconstruction and other things as liberation, as mm as enlightenment, as growing up, as maturity. So like the good parts of it, I really get that. And I talk to people yeah. who are like, why are you so hard on deconstruction? This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I'm like, I know exactly what you mean. But I also know the other end of the spectrum where mm -hmm. I didn't choose it. I underwent it. And others who are undergoing it don't need cheerleaders. They need someone yeah. to put an arm around them and show some empathy because, um, you know, the deconstructionist movement can sometimes be like a spotter in a gym saying, mm. yes, you can do it. You can do it. And, and meanwhile, there's the poor guy or woman is, is like, actually, this is not a bench press. This is a steamroller. And I don't mm. know why I'm alive anymore. Mm. So, so I wanted, so you've got the two ends, right? You've got the liberation side and then you've got the trauma side. And then we've also got the voluntary part where I'm purposely letting go of stuff. And we've got the involuntary part where it's just hitting me like a, mm. like a brick in the head. And then we've got these kind of two responses to it where you've got the hand wringing pastors trying to herd their people back into the church or through a yeah. door they're never going to return through. But on the other hand, then you've got the deconstructionists who are a bit too happy clappy for what I needed anyway. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, all of that to say it's complex because we're complex yeah. and real people need to be heard a story at a time. And even their story, like mine, is going to include both angles, I think. Most mm. people. You Okay, so this is also fascinating to me because it's deeply personal and I resonate with everything you just said. Um very, very much so, right? There's parts that, that felt like I'd chosen it and parts that felt profoundly like I had not chosen yes. it. Uh, Brian said to me on my show, you know, last year, nobody wakes up in the morning and decides to have a crisis of faith. Mm. Right. Uh, but, but you're also then teasing this out to a bigger thing, I think, because, you know, you're looking kind of across the whole landscape of, of Western faith, Western culture, yep. and, and you and you coined this term, the great deconstruction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you, can you, why? And, and, and what are the factors that you're looking at? I, I agree with you, but I'm interested yeah. to see, uh, to hear uh, what that comes yeah. from, where that lands. Oh, that's a good question. So I, I guess there's a couple things going on there. The, maybe the most obvious one is we do have these other eras where movements became so big, we called mm -hmm. them great, right? So the Great Reformation or 
the Great Awakening. Um, I suppose we didn't call the Enlightenment the Great Enlightenment, but it was the same sort. And so this has now, whatever is going on, it's now hit some kind of a threshold where mm-hmm. I think it's fair to call it an era, it's fair to call it a movement, fair to call it uh, a giant shift. In and, and even though it's like um, super complex and there's a lot of voices and so on, it, it's a thing, put it that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then what I've tried to do is... At one time, maybe I would have said, look, at deconstruction is specifically what uh, Jacques Derrida was doing in the 60s, and that's not what we're doing. So, what? And I'm like, what if I take the opposite approach and say, if we're talking about dismantling constructs, then that's a much bigger historical project that goes back to Moses and, and, yeah. and the golden calf. It goes back to Jesus and saying, you need to be born again. It goes mm-hmm. back to the early church fathers who said that there is a God, that the reality of God is beyond every construct of God and that these constructs are idols that get in your way. Um, then I, you know, as you know, I, I think, yeah, from the enlightenment on, we've got, we've got great critics of Christianity like Voltaire and, and um, Nietzsche, but we've also got great critics within Christianity of Christendom, like Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky. And all of them are like these guides that we can, we're like, oh, these are the experts who I employ for the book because I I think the biggest error we could make is doing this in a half-assed way. Yeah. Mm. If you you just sort of play with it and it, and it, it gets left as a trendy new industry to, write memes about um we're actually gonna you know we're gonna undermine where we need to get to and part of that then seeing this great deconstruction as as the birth pains of something important means Mm -hmm. that construction is a birth canal and we must not get stuck in the birth canal yeah and we have to ask where is this going and if this were only like stage two of a seven stage journey, I would want some experts to tell me about that who have the 30,000 view, foot view. Yeah. And that, that, that's why I'm interested in, in the seven sleepers in part two of my book. Cause they had the big, they see the big picture in terms of like 200 year movements. And, and if we don't pause at least to be mindful of what they noticed, um, then, then, our little trendy deconstruction can end up just being like a kite that cut its string and now got devoured by a tree. And that's it. And frankly, that's the people I meet a lot, you know? So I do know those who've been super liberated by letting go of toxic images of God. I'm part of, I hope I'm an agent of helping them do that. But I also am the one that gets the notes from like DMS from the psych wards. Mm. Saying I was a missionary, I was a pastor, I lost my church, I lost my family, I lost Jesus, I lost faith, and now I've even mm. lost meaning. And I don't know what to do. Yeah, I'm like, well, you need to, you know, I don't know, have a living connection. How do I get that? Yeah, you mean you never had that? Of course you have that. Well, I don't, you know, like so. They're so the language that gets used a lot is bereft. I'm bereft. Mm. I'm like, mm. okay, well. 
I think I better not be your answer man here, but I can mm. at least say I'm hurting with you and yeah. I'll take this seriously, even if you're just being accused of being a, a backslider mm. or if you're not a good testimony for the deconstruction movement, which is so incredibly evangelical in some ways still. You know? Indeed. <laughs> We've been talking about this all weekend, all, mm-hmm. all week here. Really? Uh, Do yeah. tell. Let me hear it from your end. I think we've agreed that much of our conversation here must remain private for, <laughs> for all of our future careers. But, but there's this, you know, th- there's this shift where where some some folks that have become vocal in this space have just kind of it, it really seems swapped one one form of fundamentalism for another. Yes, and you know, and we hesitate to even acknowledge that or, or mm. talk about it. You know, I was reading your words where you know where Kierkegaard is is fearlessly skewering everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I am not fearlessly skewering everybody. I am fearful of the things to say on this subject mm-hmm. because it feels like if I don't if I don't toe the right kind of public line about how great everything in deconstruction is, I get uh canceled, I get labeled in, in some way. But there but there seems to be uh a streak of, of unkindness, of nastiness yep. in, yep. in some of this space that, you know, that we're both sitting here going, well, that, well, that's not it. No, it's the same. It is the fundamentalist spirit still, isn't mm-hmm. it? We, you can go from right to left or conservative yeah. to, to progressive, but if you're just, you know, one example was, was, um, one of our Twitter friends, he he had done a survey of 3,000 Christians in both progressive and conservative churches. And he had laid out a, um, a in the survey, he, he presented a few lines from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 about loving your enemies, hmm. about forgiveness. Um, and in the conservative churches, it was something like, I, I, I'm quite sure I'm close on this. Something like 72% of conservatives said, this sounds like you expect me to compromise with evil. Wow. The words of Jesus. <laughs> and then the progressives um, were like 76%. This, this sounds like you're expecting me to be um, complicit with injustice. So these are active wow. church-going Christians who on a scale of three out of four were um, – wanted to retain some kind of retributive theology and practice. And so, yeah, my experience is that you can go from out of, you know, just change sides without changing spirits. And that's, that's a huge problem. Um, And if G and if the red letters are repulsive, then I don't, you know, maybe Christianity's done or something, but um, Jesus isn't. Um, He's the great instructor. Yeah. Well, the I have by the, instantly I have heard a number of pastors expressly preach against the words of Jesus, expressly preach against the words of Jesus. So, it like I've certainly kind of seen that. But I thought, like, you know, in general, Brad, I feel like part of the gift of this book, and I don't think I realized. I mean, again, in one in one way, we're talking about it all the time, but I don't think I've heard anybody quite do this the way that you're doing it here. To be able to say. Deconstruction is not monolithic. The yeah. same thing is not happening to everybody everywhere. And there's all these strands to it. So on the one hand, 
or have there, or have there been cultural, uh, a very culturally conditioned, oppressive rather, rather than liberative kind of uh, Christianity that some people are feeling and may, actually becoming set free from? Yes. Yes. Are some folks bitter and hurt and angry and kind of burning it down? Like, uh, sure. And But there's just so many different shades. It's so helpful for me the way that then you just nuance the deconstruction thing to where there's not this expectation that we're always talking about the same thing because we're really, we're really not. And I don't think I realized just how much my, my soul was craving some nuance in this conversation. Yeah, I'm totally with you. It's, it's um, because like on any given day, you know, even in my own heart, it's like, wow, I feel like, I feel like I'm a new man. And then the next day it's like, I just feel like a pile of crap, you know? Yeah. And it's, well, what's yeah. going on here, right? And so so to think that we could like define deconstruction as like you called it, a monolithic kind of thing is it? And maybe um, the only solution to that really is to say, let me, tell me your story. Tell me mm-hmm. your story and, and, and I'll, uh, and I can listen with a non-judgmental ear, yeah. Um, including like to to those who felt the need to leave. I have a chapter on believers with L E A V E R S, where mm-hmm. the only faithful move was to get out of dodge. You know, mm-hmm. and and I understand that, and I don't need them to be church members ever again, yeah. frankly. But I do want them to move from alienation to communion. Yes. You know? mm. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, and it feels like, um, Brad, it's what, and yet I feel like in, in, on the continuum, it's like you're acknowledging all these different kinds of experiences. You talk about your own experience in such a vulnerable way. Um, one of the things that I love so much about how you're able to do that is, especially where there's a ton of, there's so much pain and trauma, what you're decidedly not saying in any way. Uh, which is something I do worry about a little bit when everything's like how great deconstruction is, this idea that it's another uh, predetermined, another kind of Calvinism that says like, yeah, God ordained your pain and trauma to teach you a lesson. Like we don't want to do that. No, but I still think overall, like in the grand balance, I think if if, I'm curious if you think this, this statement is fair, I still feel like while acknowledging all the complexities you generally acknowledge a a kind of movement, a kind of initiative of the spirit in this deconstruction thing, where it's certainly much more a sense of um, there is an invitation for people to come into a richer, fuller experience of God and being human, as opposed to some version of this is the great falling away. People have are losing their minds or whatever. I, I feel like it just keeps call, the book keeps calling us back to the spirit's initiative in the midst of all these things without saying that the the spirit is somehow directly causing all of these painful realities. Yeah, that's really good. Speak you know, now look who's nuanced, right? Well done, man. That was because (laughs) like, so, so just to echo back what I heard you say, it's like, so God is not about causing the trauma that we're experiencing, but he's in us. He's with us through the trauma in a redemptive mm. way that this is going somewhere if we'll go mm. with him. Mm. And so that's why, why, you know, I, they wouldn't let me have three subtitles, but one of them that I wanted 
was was the necessity, the perils, and the possibilities of of deconstruction. So mm-hmm. I see it as necessity is basically here's here are the facts of life. It's not like God is making it necessary. It's just life. It, the necessities of life include deconstructive, reconstructive. Uh, I, let's use other words for a moment. Let's say um, Richard Rohr, he would talk about the disorientation, reorientation. That's an, that's just necessary in the same way breathing and eating and yeah. taking a trip to the can is, is necessary. It's a, it's, you don't, there's not an option. You have to go through mm-hmm. this. You have mm-hmm. to go through this just as surely as you have to go through puberty or whatever, or mm-hmm. death or death. But then I'm also saying, yeah, and there's perils to that, right? If you yeah. are listening to the wrong voices, if you are, if you're getting, um, if your trauma is becoming your identity, yeah. if your, if, if, if your journey as away from, is away from life and love, and light that that's that's pretty perilous that's ba- but but where you're what you're saying is the spirits in this and that's what i would call the possibility or you've mm-hmm. called the invitation which is a even even a better word i just wanted three p's because it's i'm an old baptist but yeah the, the, yeah, the spirit is it what so what it, what is the spirit inviting us to do it's like the spirit's like a midwife in this birthing process just mm-hmm. saying like when to breathe push you know um and I connected that a lot with, you know, Valerie Carr's book, um, See No Stranger. She's this wonderful Sikh activist who is uh, talking about a revolution of love. And she uses the same metaphor for, mm-hmm. you know, the, that the darkness, the, the darkness that we even experience in this, and both personally and socially, because this isn't just an individual issue. She would say, well, the darkness of maybe a, a womb and not a tomb, or mm-hmm. it could be either. Yeah. And let's that's why I think we actually do need to write about it a bit. Is like is do I have if I have any agency in this? Yes. Um then I would love to I would love for it to be a womb that leads to new life. And it can be and I'm seeing it for a lot of people. So that's mm-hmm. that's a holy spirit move in my opinion. Mm-hmm. That also means de- yeah, de- dethroning the way like let's say white christian nationalism or the these like false false gods that are actually an embarrassment to faith um those have to come down um but a lot of people they're just trying to get through the day (laughs) so that's right that's right i'm wondering in some ways brad um and this is this is a really open-ended question uh, one, I really, I especially love being able to ask you because I feel like you've been such a wise guide through all these issues for me. Sometimes what I wonder is, um, even though deconstruction exists on a continuum and includes any and all kinds of experiences and ways of you know processing, like for any of us, the ways we process pain and trauma, some responses might be more healthy, some might be less healthy. Uh, okay. But I wonder if in, if in some ways, if overall, there is this sense of um, there is a movement of the spirit that is uh, pushing us towards um, freedom, maybe in some really important ways. I do wonder if there's also this sense, too. I think all the time about, uh, you know, in John, the whole 
perfect love cast out fear. But yeah. when so many of us have had a faith system that's so fear-based to the core, you take that out of us. And, and, and especially the further that goes, like we don't, I think a lot of times we don't know how to run without that. Okay. So maybe I don't believe the way I used to about uh, eternal conscious torment and some of these things. And that's a needed shift. But now why, why do I make decisions or how do I make decisions about how to love my neighbor or have any kind of boundaries in my life at all that might be healthy? I think a lot of us really are struggling with, okay, maybe I feel liberated from something, but not really having the resources to know what to do now. I've heard these stories about the Welsh revival where all these, all these rough men changed their ways. Mm. And since they were no longer cursing at their donkeys, the donkeys didn't understand what they were being asked to do anymore. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And I, and I, and I feel that inside myself at, at times where I'm like, Oh, I don't feel, I don't feel stricken with a sense of my own disgustingness Mm. as much as I used to certainly stricken by my capacity to hurt others. Yes. That, Mm. that, and I think I'm allowed to be honest about that, (laughs) confess that, but without this driving mechanism of fear, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like agoraphobia. Like, Mm. like this field is too big and and, and open. Mm. It's exactly that. It's spiritual agoraphobia. That's such a good analogy. Like, what do I do with this open space? It's terrifying. Mm. Um, What comes to mind right away uh, is a passage from Brothers Karamazov that's called the the Grand Inquisitor. Mm. And the other is Romans 6, verse 1. So first of all, the Grand Inquisitor is a a short story within a big novel about how a Grand Inquisitor during the Spanish Inquisition finds out Jesus is in town and has healed a little girl. And so he arrests him and he interrogates him. But the interrogation is really him just giving Jesus a lecture about how the freedom that Christ brought was, we can't handle it. And so that the church had had to take into its own hands um, saying yes to the three temptations of Satan in the wilderness. And he accuses Jesus of giving us an unmanageable freedom. And so the church now has had to say, no, we're going to operate like the kingdoms of this world. And we are going to use control and fear because that's what the market demands. Yeah. Wow. Um, it's, it's, it's worth just reading that section. It even sells it as, as its own short story, but it's unbelievable because it is then a critique of the church. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's also able to distinguish Jesus from the church. Mm. And it's, it's meant to, to invite the, church to repent of those things. But he does identify a very real problem. Dostoevsky is so good at this. He will take characters who are opposed to his own personal views yeah. and he will give, he will present them not as straw men, but the very strongest arguments. Well, then let's just shift to Romans six, verse one. He, Paul is, Paul has been sharing this kind of grace an agoraphobic level of grace in Christ that whatever Adam has done to screw us over, Christ has undone. Hmm. And, but then his opponents are going to object. And he, he tells us their objection. What shall we then just sin that grace may abound? Cause they don't know what else to do. Right. 
now I'm free, then I may as well just go do this and that. And I've heard pastors say that. It's like, mm. if I didn't believe in eternal conscious torment, yeah. I would just go screw around. I would have affairs. I would do that. And like, and they go through all the litany of hedonism that they, their heart's not been won. I'm like, you, mm. you, 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 you mean you need hell to behave, to be a good person? Like yeah. even humanists are better than that. So, yeah. <laughs> but we've been, de- and so Paul says, so I'm not going to present an answer now, but I think Paul does in Romans six, and it has something to do with. Look at I'm not saying it's either live in terror or anything goes. Mm. I'm saying the grace I'm talking about is fearless, but it involves mm. identifying with the death of, and resurrection of Jesus, identifying with metamorphosis, identifying with um, that kenosis and theosis, which is like I'm I'm I'm. I'm crucifying the demands of my ego and I am now um, surrendering my life and will to the care of this loving God who's leading me somewhere. So, so we don't go from grace to anything goes. We go from, or, or fear to anything goes. We go from, from fear to a, to a surrender to grace Mm -hmm. that is about death and resurrection. Mm -hmm. And that's why I do think we need to double down on deconstruction. So we get all the way to Mm -hmm. death. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, that's so. That's so powerful. I'm wondering, Brett. And this is one of the things I really. Uh, in, it's funny. I like I, the kind of thing that I've, I've thought of this a number of times. Like I'd love to ask you about, but then having this conversation, even a couple of the examples that you use there, say like, um, and I've had this come up in a couple of different ways now. So like the uh, that notion of the person who would say, which again, I and I I get that. Uh, if I didn't have eternal conscious torment to believe in, then I would do X, Y, and Z. So that's that's still very that's very much what's in you to do. It's what you want to do, but there's this external restraint. It's the only reason you're not doing it. For me, somehow there's a link between something like that, or when we see people who are in a certain kind of fundamentalism where they're insiders and outsiders, good guys and bad guys. Um, almost this, you know, childish Western sort of white hats and black hats, like everybody, everything's just very binary, very black and white. Like it's all like just extremely rigid. People change their minds entirely uh, in terms of what they believe about God, what they believe about theology. And yet still it's insiders and outsiders. Uh, We know that we're in us because we have them on down the line, on down the line. I think this whole deconstruction conversation keeps making me just wonder just how little what we ostensibly believe, what we think about God, what that has to do with like, with almost anything. It's like, we're, we're discipled, we're formed in these ways that are like in our bones. And I wonder if in some ways, like where we shift on the continuum of how we think about God might not be as big as we thought you know, when it maybe it's more like the, the these habits, these practices, these ways that we live are much more determinative than like the people that we really are. Does that make yeah, sense? It does make sense. Yeah. What? Where? Um. Like, what do we really believe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and how do how do you know what I really believe? Well, it's not going to be a doctrinal statement I compose, which is another construct. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a way of being. And um, and and not just doctrinal constructs, but ideological ones. And that's where I'm thinking yeah. about, let's say, what 
what needs to be de- one thing that needs to be deconstructed is the left right spectrum itself the whole yeah. spectrum is the world system that depends on us them yeah and how do you and so here's the hard question i think we need to spend some decades on how do you transcend that spectrum but stay engaged ooh right cuz i i can just like say well i'm not left or right yeah. I'm center. Well, no, you're still on the spectrum then. And, and, right. and, and now you've got a new one called, you know, the establishment versus the populace or what? You know, so, okay. If I can exit that spectrum and deconstruct it, well, I am deconstructing it when I identify it as a, a strict, a, a, a script of us, thems all the way across mm-hmm. that requires another. Yeah. And, uh, who I can exclude. But if I can come off of that, that still begs the question, how will I do justice in this world? Mm. If I follow Jesus to do that, I am going to coincidentally look like someone on the left or right at any given moment, Mm. but it's Mm. only a coincidence because sometimes Christ calls us to, to, to welcome strangers and maybe the left is better at that. Mm. Or sometimes Christ calls us to advocate for for a certain vulnerable group, and and maybe the right is doing that somewhere, right? And and you're oh, you're on the right, you're on the left, and and I'm like, well, geez, um, no, it's not about that. I'm a mm. follower of Jesus, but I I and I think what we're going to have to do is just say, as long as I stay engaged, people will mistake me for someone on the spectrum, and mm. they will, and when they do, they'll give me a script. And when I fail to follow their script, they will stab me in the back. (laughs) And I see this all the time, right? And it's like, that's just how it is. And I guess that's the cruciform life. That's Mm. picking up your cross and following Jesus. I'm thinking, you know, the the son of man came eating and drinking. And this is what you said, you know, John Mm. in the wilderness, you know, it's kind of like you, you people aren't happy either way. Yeah, that's it. John, John came neither eating nor drinking. You said he had a demon, you know, or, mm-hmm. or whatever they said about him. And I, um, it was the Piper, right? The, yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and who's, yeah, I, I, that text, we probably need to return there because we have concluded that, um, that, you know, my wife has led a congregation over a nine month a nine-month process to becoming a fully affirming congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, what she's found out is that, like, on 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 the one hand, there are some who just were not happy about it, mm. and on the other hand, there's others who will never be happy about it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so oh, I get it. It's never good enough, is it? Nope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just as faithfully as they can, they've actually really walked beautifully as a congregation and and made it about. If Jesus is the center and this is his table, who's he inviting? Everyone. Okay, let's do that. And um, so they, I, they've, I, I would. It sounds crass, but they've successfully become an affirming congregation Mm. um, without blowing the church up. But they Mm. did it. I, they did it through the gospel rather than through ideology. And she's had to put some effort into ensuring that ideology doesn't co-opt the journey. Wow. Um, that's one so- example of that I can give you would be like, let's say she t- she says this will take nine months for me to talk to everyone in the church about all their questions and concerns. And I'm going to take those nine months. And she did. But there were some who would be like, smash the patriarchy. We just need to tell yeah. people what to do. <laughs> and she's like, yeah. smash. 
uh, telling people what to do is the patriarchy, whether you have a penis or breast, you know, like that's, <laughs> yes. And, uh, and people got it. They did get it. They're like, oh, okay. So we're not going to just continue doing a top down my way or the highway thing. Cause that's the patriarchy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so the means of getting there, they, they really yeah. um, were able to, to manage it, but boy, that took soul strength on her. Yeah, I'm very proud of her, and I'm proud of her mm. church because because they went for it. It was great. What you just what you just said there, you know, in terms of uh, Eden's process being gospel centric and and resisting ideology. I mean, I think that's exactly what you just identified as this. How do we how do we do this faithful work without uh, landing on these these spectrums that you know these left and right camps that that need to be deconstructed. Uh, and then you just said Eden went and talked to everybody. Yeah, that that is slow, intimate, communal work. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it can be done at scale, or or has to? Does it have to be intimate and small? Mm. Um. Well, this this raises a question about like does doesn't church have to be done intimate and small so that you don't get to a size that requires structures that are intrinsically problematic. Whoa. So yeah, in her case, it looked like, <laughs> and it was wild because it was during COVID. So she would be outside on our deck, one person at a time, one couple at a time. Mm-hmm. And also she wasn't trying to coerce or convince anything. She would say, just talk, tell me how you're feeling. What are your mm-hmm. concerns? What are your questions? And And she was like brutal in terms of not reacting to them. And she said almost all of them just talked themselves out of, uh, out of like a problem. And and wow. she's like, and they're like, oh, thank you so much. You've really helped me. And all they did was <laughs> work it through for themselves, but they needed a, a, a non-judgmental ear to hear. Yeah. And it was, it was pretty funny. Like how little, how little she um, had to impose her will on anything. It mm. was. Because imposing your will is the patriarchy, you know. Yeah, that's, yeah. She's, she she has a nose for that, and it really helped. Her name's Eden, by the way, for those who don't know. So Eden Jersak and her her uh, friend uh, Sarah Pickering, they're co-pastors at a church called the Bridge, hmm. and uh, and and yeah. So they did it. You know, I must say they probably spent several years just talking open table, wow. talking inclusion. But then it's hmm. when they asked her if she'd like to come on staff, she said. Only if I can start this nine-month process, wow. and they're like unanimously went for it, and they maybe lost one couple. But could you do that in a church of a thousand? I don't know. Can you even have a church of a thousand? Is that a church? Is that? <laughs> I suppose mm. it is. It's I a think that's the question, though. Like, yeah. I think you're absolutely right to say that to ask that. Yeah, I'm so yeah. glad that you told that story because it's such a it's such a concrete, real one real lives, real relationships in a community. Yep. It makes me think of a move I really appreciate in the book when, um, you know, later in the book, the where you talk about Howard Thurman, uh, kind of get into Black church witness in that way. That feels so important to me for this, uh, many reasons, but uh, this is a lot of it. I, I think we have to own the ways. And and incidentally, I still don't think these ideas were like wrong or unimportant. When I think about the, the certain a tradition that's informed me 
maybe best embodied and, and very powerful through people like Stanley Howells and I go down the line. But I think this notion of, you know, the ways that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the community of God, whatever language you want to use, is very different from the structures of the world. Like all of that's like so important. But I feel like exactly where, where it's so important to tell the kind of stories like you just did about Eden and the church. When we talk about Howard Thurman, we think about the black church in general in America, um, it, is that it, there is a real temptation to, you know, what you describe as kind of disengaging, like being above the fray. And in so many ways, I think for a lot of us in sort of various, well, just all kinds of white evangelicalist, like I feel like that's often the move. It's like, so maybe we move beyond, you know, fundamentalism like we have known it, but then it becomes this sort of like, well, we, we've withdrawn from these things altogether. And it seems like we need those voices and that counter witness that, that, calls it, you know, puts our feet to the fire, you know, like, you don't, you actually don't get to escape the world. You got to live in it in some way. Like, what are you going to do with, with all this new information? Right. Yeah. I, and, and, and that, I mean, you, you can't help but stay engaged if you're, if you're in that, in the world of those that Jesus chose to hang out with. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'll give an example of this. When I was a young, I was a youth pastor, and we were part of something called Living and Faithful Evangelism with the Mennonites. So mm. I had a reputation of hanging out with the church growth people, mm. the evangelical wing of the of the Mennonites. They didn't seem to realize I had bought into the nonviolent activism. They kind of didn't trust that. Especially like so, the local folks from Mennonite Central Committee, who I think are, are maybe among the best um, relief and development organizations in the world, hmm. they were worried about the, my influence a little bit. So they're like, "We want you to come see what we're doing in Haiti and Jamaica." And I'm like, "I would love to." I'm hmm. like, "I'm all if I can take my wife." And they're like, well, "Okay." So we go down to Haiti, and and we ended up in a situation where a local MCC, a a Haitian national who worked as a community organizer with MCC was, was taken while we were there and he was hogtied and beaten very badly. And they were intending Mm -hmm. to kill him that night. So I went with our hosts and we had to stand outside the shack where this little police station, where it was really middle military. um, It it, it was thugs who'd become the military, right? Mm -hmm. And we're going to kill him. And we heard a rumor that you could, you could bribe them for maybe 200 bucks and get someone free. And they're like, no, not in this case, we're going to get drunk and kill them tonight. That's what like, they literally just told us that. And wow. meanwhile, they did permanent damage to his hearing and things like this. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, um, I recognize then that when MCC in our conference was being accused of being political mm. and the, evangelical wing really was part of that the accusers and they were saying mcc mm. you should just get on with the gospel and not get entangled politically well here i'm standing in front of the police station and these guys have m16s and had been trained mm. in america the school of the americas and when it existed and i just realized you don't even have a choice i can either abandon the man or I can stay here. Now, I don't mm. want to sound like a hero in this. I was just along for the ride, and I was 
putting all my energy into not shitting myself. But the guy who was with me is saying, you're going to stand before Jesus Christ someday. And you're going to have to give an account of today. And you're going to have to give an account to your children of what you do. And meanwhile, the guy is like shaking and he's got his machine gun. <laughs> and I'm like, I think we could get killed here. Well, it, I mean, I suppose to some outsider that might have seen like getting political. Mm. But engagement was either you turn from love or you stay and get in a place of risk. And so that really cleared a lot up for me in a few minutes there, by the way, um, we just saw a series of miracles in that case where the guy was finally released. And part of the miracle was the guts of the people I was with. But anyway, so, you know, if I can just go retreat then to my suburban home and I ignore the homeless down in my city, or if I turn off my responsibility to the immigrants and the refugees who are coming in, and if I just don't get involved in what's happening in the world, then okay, I suppose I could do that. Mm-hmm. But to stay engaged, you will probably look political. And so mm-hmm. guys like Howard Thurman would look political. I'm like, no, no, that's the gospel. That's yeah. not even an offshoot of the gospel. Right. It's not a corollary of the gospel. It's... Following Jesus is is that kind of engagement. It is engagement. So, mm. uh, yeah. And until our until our kingdoms are the kingdom of our God, until our nations are the kingdom of our God, uh, it's only going to be a matter of time, right? Until the mm. gospel runs afoul of yep. power structure. Yeah, it's inevitable. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I do want to mention something. Um. I am, I'm struggling today to remember a name. It's this wonderful woman who um, she was part of our, our um, a conversation I was at in New Orleans. Um, and uh, she's a elder, elder uh, really a, a elder in the black church. She's just a wonderful woman and act, activist. I feel like her name's Lisa. Um, and she, she made this warning to me and it just, I think it caused all of our hearts to to clench because <laughs> she said, if, if in your deconstruction um, you walk away from the church as this nebulous, because it's full of white nationalism and it's bigoted, without investigating the life and gospel that's happening in the black church, mm. then walking away is still an act of white nationalism. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> wow. So to me, that was like super profound. And that's why I did ask Felicia Morel to help me mm-hmm. work out. Cause I'm, I'm like, if, when I think of Christianity or the church in America, I do tend to think about it as this self disqualifying movement that I have no time for anymore. And then she comes along and says, so we, I guess the black church doesn't exist. eh?" Mm. Whoops. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I guess there's no good Christian leaders out there anymore. So I guess I guess um, Howard Thurman doesn't count, does he? Mm-hmm. Or or Beatrice King or whoever, right? And like, okay, that's a good point. And so I did start looking. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. Out of the embers, I'm like, okay, something's burnt to the ground. But I see some live embers here that could actually be the beginnings wow. of a real faith movement. 
Never so mind that, the beginning. Sorry. For me, they never. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, let me interrupt. That's right. Carry on. No, I just wanted to affirm. Like I uh, and I, I saw that uh, the event. Of course, that's I love uh, Phil Johnso and that church and Lisa Sharon Harper. I, I think that was right. Um, that's at Lisa Sharon Harper. Yeah, like her her stuff because she has the, she has a, a a riff in general that I found to be, and I feel like this can be abrasive for people who are used to thinking about deconstruction a certain way. But I think it's so helpful this notion that hey. Okay, if if the real Jesus, if the actual Jesus is, in fact, a brown skinned man persecuted by the empire, you are conceding to white nationalism. You're conceding to white supremacy that their version of Jesus is Jesus. You know, if you say, like, this is what Jesus is and you walk away, you're accepting their definition of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. I find that to be incredibly devastating and haunting point. Yeah. Critique. We've just had. We've just recorded with Lisa for for my show, and it'll be up in a little bit. But I don't. I felt like I'd never even heard the gospel before mm. no. until I heard it from from her. I know we're supposed to be promoting my book, but like you, people have got to get her book, uh, the very yeah. good gospel: how everything wrong can be made right. Does that that doesn't sound like someone who's despaired of? Mm-hmm. Or walked away from Jesus. And so if we're going to talk deconstructions, there she is. She's deconstructing something. Yeah. And uh, I'm just, I admire that so much. I, I'm, it's funny too, because up in Canada, we have the issue around the indigenous people right now. My, my mm-hmm. daughter-in-law is half Cree, and we've had this terrible, you know, the residential school stuff. And, um, um, while the church's involvement as agents of that genocide mm. inexcusable and and they need to own it completely there can there there is a forgetfulness that the philosophy yeah. behind it was mm. actually european progressivism that's where right. the same people who said christianity is superstitious and we need to be in, in guillotines in Paris, that ideology is the same one that said these indigenous people are backward yeah. and superstitious, and we need to we need to rub their culture out in the name of progressivism. Right, and so I'm looking at that, and and, and um, so what happens then is you've got some people. Um, I, I feel I, I feel like there's two camps. One camp is is mm-hmm. like. Jesus is a white European mm-hmm. and he's bad, so let's go burn the churches down. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. these First Nations people are the ones who built the churches yeah. and these churches because they identified Jesus with the brown Jesus of Galilee. Yeah, And yes. so that's an interesting dynamic that I, I cover at some point late in the it, book. It's it's provoc- like that. Sorry, Brad. Go ahead. That truth telling, you know, that the church mm. needs to do in terms of its complicity yeah. historically in these things, you know, there's room in that truth telling to say, oh, and also this was Antichrist through and through from the beginning. Yes. Not yes. only did we do evil, we'd had no idea in whose name we thought we were doing it. Mm. Yes. Which yes. is kind of, it brings me back to, you know, I, when I watch even in the last, you know, five, six years, we've seen some of these kind of 
more celebrity type figures, uh, worship leaders, well-known Christians walking away from the faith. And, and I've listened, you know, sat down and listened to their stories and the God that they describe wanting to nothing to do with. And I'm like, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You should have nothing to do with that God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's funny too, because because then the actual God is is very much alive and well and at work, and there's light shining through. And I'm so proud of my friends down. You know, I'm part of a 12 step group now since 2009, and you know these guys are so fun because they, you know, they uh, half of them are ex Christians. Of uh, of the ex Christians, half are ex pastors. Wow, <laughs> and. Um, a few of them maybe have hung on to their faith, but some are like, well, I'm an agnostic now. I'm a heretic mm-hmm. now. I'm a pagan now. These are words they use. Yeah. And, and then in the midst of it, they're like, but we've, but I'm like, well, then tell me about your higher power. If he's not, you know, who you thought he was. And they're like, well, he's loving, caring, relational, mm-hmm. responsive, forgiving. I'm like, oh, I know that God. And they're like, mm-hmm. and I don't know who or what he is anymore, but I know this. He's in me and he's bigger than me and he's here and he's transforming us. Well, talk about the humility of Jesus if his J name has been so besmirched that people walk away from it. He's not walking away from them and he's he's quite fine to be known as the light or love or life. And and I'm I'm so impressed with him that Mm. these folks are like and you know what? When I act as if he's there or she's there or whatever it is there, you know, that's how they talk. Um, hmm. um, I'm being set free. So the, the liberation yeah. is still happening apart yeah. from their old construct because yeah. they didn't get rid of them. They got rid of a construct. That's so wonderful, Brad. It may, it all, you know, it makes me, it makes me think about because I feel like this is such a careful distinction and i love that i love that you are walking that line even how you describe that you know the the language has shifted but in reality here are folks who very much are still in touch with uh, a higher power of love and god's not offended you know they still think we get god's name wrong that kind of thing something though i do feel like is um that i've just been sitting with for a bit here and well real quick story a couple weeks ago uh, I, and it's, I literally have never preached in this text before I was preaching the lectionary text, like, well, that's how it goes. I need to preach the gospel text of the lectionary. So we'll see what happens. And it's the story of the, um, uh, the persistent widow and the unjust judge. And one of, and as I'm thinking about that story, I'm thinking about, you know, in the last few years in Oklahoma, being in community with Madeline Jones, uh, Julius Jones, mom, and, Antoinette's sister, Julius, has been on death row in Oklahoma for over 20 years. I was thinking about how much Madeline, uh, more than anybody I can think of, embodies that spirit of the of the persistent widow. She's the one who kept knocking and knocking and knocking. Uh, and it's so funny. There's this texture in the story. You know, the judge is afraid of of, of the woman. And it's um, there's a line where I think in Greek, more literally, almost be like he, he's afraid she's going to give him a black eye. Like he's intimidated because she's so persistent. And and what I've seen in Madeline's life and over 20 years, like not giving into despair, continued like something just kind of clicked in me, this idea that to to despair, to relinquish hope altogether, sometimes I think really is a kind of privilege 
where people who really are on the underside of a thing, like for Madeline, it would never be an option to give up hope for it. It's just not something you can do. And I think sometimes, uh, and not saying that away with any, like any, you know, jaggedness or condemnation, but I think some of us uh, maybe can forget that there is a kind of luxury to being able to say, oh, I just, I'm just done with everything. I'm done with hope. It, it, like indulge that kind of despair. Not everybody is able to do that. Absolutely. Howard Thurman has, has I think, a quote on, I'm, you know, I'm never surprised by evil. I'm a, mm. I'm a follower of Jesus. And it hit me because I am surprised by evil. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> what a privileged position. Mm. You know, I must have lived to yeah. not, to, to, to be shocked and surprised when things go poorly, mm. when injustice happens in the world. I, w- I, was, mm. I was deeply humbled. Yeah, I, that, that's a reality where we can turn the channel, right? And some, um, I can forget about how hard it is to, to, if you're a person of color who has to assess every pub you go into as to whether you're safe. And I don't even have to think about that. Um, um, and that, but that is, it is what it is. You know, the reality is I can, I, I'll go to bed tonight and I don't have to think about things that people in torn countries have to think about, but then I just better not make any assumptions, <laughs> um, uh, you know, about being a good guy or something like that, or why, you know, yes why I'm in this place of privilege. I do think that's there's a sense in which that's what Philippians two is about that where, uh, though he was, though being God in nature, Christ, um, where we use the word kenosis emptied himself. I think it's sort of like he set aside privilege and though fully aware of his social location. Hmm. Yeah. Jesus he, set yeah. aside his privilege. Hmm. Yes. And he takes the form of a servant. But when it says the form, it, it's not saying like it's not a disguise. In fact, it's an unveiling of God as servant. But so form out of being, it's not just a mask that he's slumming it to pretend something. Actually, he's unveiling the, the very nature of God as hmm. what he's is not culturally to, appropriating the right. guise of a slave hmm. to prove a theological point. Hmm. That's right. That's right. Yep. Brad, I'm wondering if, um, I love that so much. The, uh, maybe in terms of just bring a couple things full circle. And I feel like this is, you know, as much as I love your, uh, your theological work, your way of processing through these things. One of the places where I just, I feel like you eat <laughs> and that you do best. And I, I love that this happens so much through the book, which, by the way, I felt very ridiculous to go straight into praising the, the book so much and never actually say the name of the book is Out of the Ember's Faith After the Great Deconstruction. That seems worth saying. Should have done that a long time ago. Um, I'll be plugging this in all kinds of different ways, but uh, it's so important. But I love that throughout the book, Whereas, yes, you're, you know, you're dealing with the academic stuff, the philosophical stuff. Uh, you, there's the, the memoir element in terms of your own story. I love how all throughout the book you're weaving in stories of people that you know and conversations that are happening in real time where people who are all over this continuum of this great deconstruction conversation, how they're experiencing pain, loss, hope. I would love in whatever direction you want to go with this, just for you to, if you could tell us just a couple 
of stories right now that are especially pressing on you in terms of real people who are in the thick of this and how maybe they're connecting with God, maybe they're finding meaning, working their way through this. Like, what are you seeing right now and hearing through these stories that's just really grabbing a hold of you? Um, so do you mean from the book or outside of the book? What's your, okay. Yeah. So, um, so one that I, you know, one that I mention in the book is, is this guy who had been a, I, he was a Christian. I think he was a pastor, but he, and, and part had, he was part of a multi-campus kind of mega church and he had some profile in it. And I, I don't know why his deconstruction was so messy um, and why for him it was a free fall, but he ended up in, in a pretty dire situation where, and one of the metaphors I use in the book is about like a mastectomy. My mom went through a mastectomy. And so cancer had to go for him in terms of spiritual uh, his, his spiritual tradition was cancerous, but he he lost so much meaning that he was bereft. And it was funny because in the midst of that, when he no longer believed in Jesus at all, um, he he from crisis care and suicidal ideations, he cried out to God. But the the word that came out was Jesus. And it shocked him that that's what came out of his mouth. And um, um, it reminded, Jonathan, you'll know this really well. It reminded me of the U2 song, uh, Jesus, Help Us. It's a fucked up world, you know. (laughs) And, And then the moment he cried out to Jesus, he heard back. And what he heard was my name. And it's not because I'm an expert on any of this stuff, but I think... God just knew that if that guy reached out to me that day, I wouldn't ignore it because I do ignore. Like I get too many inquiries, right? But that day I didn't, you know? And so now he is on a pathway of like, what is it to have a living connection? How can I have this? How can I have this? And my godfather said, just start with empathy and tell him you already have it. In fact, out to God and you used the name Jesus and then you heard back from him. So you don't have to grope for living connection. It's you have identified it in your darkest place. And isn't that cool that he didn't have to dig himself out to a place of light in order to have an encounter with uh with the living God. It's like in in the abyss. That's where you that's where he met him. And um I connect that with this Russian proverb I love so much because I've messed with it. The Russian proverb is um, um, when when you think you've hit the bottom, uh, you'll hear a knock from below. The way I've messed with it is I've said, and it's Jesus knocking. He, he will always be beneath us, undergirding us, even at the very, very bottom. And sometimes we just need to get to the very bottom. Yeah. So that'd be one example where I'm I'm guy who lost everything and then out of the embers an important word to me and this is inexplicable it is inexplicable how he got there and how he is coming out of there and also that it's not magical he didn't 
this hasn't been tied off with a bow. This is going to be years of recovery if he does. But there was God, so that was cool. One example. Um, the other was the other example from the book that's precious to me. That this this you know this woman who contacted me. Her and her husband were moving from the UK to to uh, the northeast. Um, and and she had very very serious trauma, and she's just like, well, what do I do with this? I, and meanwhile, I'm writing about liberation at that moment, <laughs> and she starts pinging me on the phone, and and I'm just like, well, yeah, yeah, you know, this is trauma. You need to get a therapist, and so maybe when you get over to America, get a therapist. And she's like, wouldn't drop it. And finally, I, I felt like God was speaking to me and saying, would you? I want to touch her right now. Like, would you just tell her, turn to Jesus, tell him how you feel and see what he says. And then for the next few hours, she went into some kind of profound encounter with God where, I mean, that involved like the trauma was shaking out of her body. Now I'm not, I would never say do that instead of trauma therapy that got her to trauma therapy. But it was like a very real encounter of the living God. That's why I said earlier in the show, it's like, how do we facilitate a place where God is real to us? So for this guy who calls out to Jesus when he didn't even mean to, for this woman who had a sudden encounter with, with uh, in, in body trauma, just because like I impatiently told her to go ask Jesus, um, that's fascinating to me. I wish it wasn't so random. It doesn't even have to be. Maybe there are ways to um, orient ourselves towards that kind of mercy on purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always worried about making technologies, though. That never goes well. <laughs> I, th- I mean, not to boil down the ocean, but I, th- I think this is the thing. God is either, God is either real yeah. and present or isn't. And I, we've been talking about this again the, the last yeah. couple of days. People are hungry and desperate for a genuine connection with, with God, with the divine love, with the light, with Jesus. Yes. Uh, I know you don't want to be overly prescriptive. And, and yes, it's personal. But if someone is listening yeah. and they're just desperate and they don't know what to do next, I mean, what would your, what would your few words of encouragement be, Brent? Hmm. Um, yeah, so I'll I'll do two layers. So the most immediate layer is I just go into that kind of listening prayer where I close my eyes, I picture his face. Maybe I'm constructing it, but I, I, I bring my cares there and I say, Jesus, part of me feels this way. And then as best you can be brutally honest, here's how I feel, even if it's like angry or sad or whatever, Psalm 6, Psalm 13, if you need words for it, those two Psalms will give you words. But if you know exactly what you're feeling, just tell them. And then do give them the benefit of responding. And it really is that simple. If God is real and he's in you, if he says, cast all your cares on me because I care for you, call on me and I will answer you, then my experience is that he does. Now I can, so that's one layer. The other layer is just, I know we're not all wired exactly that way. So at one point in the book, I talk about like, well, this needs to work for everyone. God will 
work with everyone if he's alive. And so I talk about the, you know, the, the way of the via um, activa, you know, that's the way of, if, if you meet God in, in the act of life of reaching out to the poor, you can meet him there. I meet him with the addict. I meet him with the homeless. I meet him with the disabled all the time, easily, easily. Cause he said, so Matthew 25, right. Um, but there's also the via positiva. Maybe you love to read and listen to podcasts and think about God and talk about, you do know, tell, don't tell me what you've read about God. Tell me, I bet you, if I pray with somebody, not, I bet you, I know this is the case. If I just ask God, would you remind them of a time when you, they actually met you? I've never met someone who hasn't, you know, atheist. I was in jail and my twin sister died. And I, it's the first time I ever prayed. And I felt like she was there with me. I'm like, okay, there you go. Yeah. Um, third, you know, via creativa, you know, and that is some people that they're not going to really access this kind of living connection unless, it's, but then suddenly through art, through knitting, for goodness sake, through mm. whatever creative output works for you, you know, you then do that, right? And then the the via negativa, that's the way, the negative way. That is, tell me what God isn't. Mm. God isn't angry. God isn't a mean father. God isn't no. a vengeful, punitive judge. And then you, what you're doing there is you're clearing the way. So these kind of ways of orienting, I think, at least set us up for the possibility that he's there. And at some point, I think it's not on us. I think God, like, I'll tell God this. This is not on mm. us. This you yeah so if you're real um i'll tell you what you prove it i'm not going <laughs> to prove it mm-hmm. but here's what i'll bring to the table i will watch for moments of grace um i have a fun one to tell you about this is just very positive uh, i i've been reading the Sikh scriptures and they're beautiful they're like song of solomon they're about grace, that one glance of grace washes your sins away, that it's not about rituals and fasting and pilgrimages. It's about turning towards love. This is what's in the scriptures, right? So I'm buying something for my phone in the mall from a guy with a turban. And I start asking, like, do you have any services that are in English? You're like, no, no, we just, we're singing our scriptures in our own language. And it, I'm like, oh, okay. And he, I said, because I've been reading translations and I'm loving it. And he's like, oh, what are you learning from your translation? <laughs> and, um, and, and I said, well, I was reading about how, how our soul is like a bride to God. And God's the husband. I, I love that. That's like, that's what I believe. And he's like, oh, you're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> and I'm like, what happened there? Oh, we had an exchange of grace. When I'm talking about experiencing God, I'm usually thinking about what's happening in my heart when I pray at night. That's when it, when God, I feel God. If my wife talks about it, 100% of her stories of encounters with God are in those engagements with other people. So that just, oh, we've got something for introverts. We've got something for extroverts. God's everywhere. Wow. So, um, so I get, boy, that was a long answer, but like, so so if we will leave it to, if we'll orient ourselves towards the light, if we'll be attentive for moments of grace, and if we let God do his thing instead of prescribing how it has to look, this I think we'll see people making connections. 
Amen. Amen. Brad is so, yeah, it's so well, yet again, what an incredibly powerful conversation. I think the, and it's such a gifting that you carry. And I love, because I think it, nothing here is prescriptive. There's not a one size fits all answer for anyone, but this nudge to call out to God, this, uh, this, this nudge that uh, God will meet us where we are. And I feel like one of the, one of the gifts that you most carry is just helping people to step into those moments. Um, it just feels right and appropriate in whatever direction you want to go for this. Uh, and Jonathan, I love so much that you specifically framed this is for people who are feeling, cause I feel like it's so present that active disorientation that, that sense the whirlwind, I think we're all kind of in and out of Brad, wherever you want to take this, I would just love it. If you would take us into a moment of that kind of attentiveness, awareness, prayer, connection, however you want to do it, but may, maybe like for those who are listening right now, just to, to take us in that kind of moment where maybe to hear in that way, to see in that way, to feel in that way could be, could be possible. Yeah, for sure. I would love to do that. Um, I did a listening prayer exercise one time previously. I'm going to come at this one a little different. I'm going to give you a, a quick backstory. A young woman came um, to a, a conference. Uh, it was a retreat we were doing. And, and she, the day she became a Christian, she was 14 years old. The day she became a Christian, her, her body fell apart into a kind of chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. That day, and she lost her entire youth to it. She was mostly bedridden from 14 years old to when I met her. She's about 21. And she was, uh, she was from Quebec, and she's like, I don't, uh, I, I don't even know what to do with this. And I'm like, I didn't know what to do with it either. So I, I said, uh, but what I can do is pro I can probably hold your hand and cry with you. Yeah. And, and so let's just do that. And um, so this will be a two-part exercise. So the, the first part I want to, this is what I did with her. And, and uh, for those who are hurting today, I'm going to pray Psalm 6. And you're welcome to pray it with me, but I'll do it for you if you want. And this is for people who are in a place of desolation. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Or discipline me in your wrath, because that's kind of what I expect. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping, and I drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. And all my enemies, depression, anxiety, panic, fear, shame, anguish, they will be overwhelmed. They will turn back and be put to shame. 
And now Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Day after day, I have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me. Answer me, Lord. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and I may as well. And my enemy will say, I have overcome them. My foes will rejoice that I fall. But you know what? I'm going to trust in your unfailing love. My heart is going to rejoice in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise. Because I bet, I just hope, maybe out of the ashes, you'll be good to me. Now, the second part of our exercise, I just want you to, I want you to think about kind of kneeling, sitting, whatever. Um, Even in despondency or defeat, at the foot of the cross, and we look at the one who is the cross-shaped God, who's the intersection of pure goodness and absolute affliction. And we look to that one and he says, I know, I know, I I really, I know, I know. And he didn't just suffer like us. He suffered what we suffered. He suffers what we suffered directly because our affliction nails us to his heart there on the cross. And out of his wounds, Lord, I pray that Uh, healing love would flow into my brothers and sisters today, anywhere they need it, where they've experienced trauma, where they've experienced abandonment, where they've experienced accusation, even in their, in their, um, in their deconstruction that they've, they've fallen into alienation. Anybody like that, that needs your touch today, um, And we're going to do, this will be interesting. Instead of him hanging on the cross, the one with those wounded hands comes to you now. And I ask that he'd lay his wounded hands on your heart and on your wounds and that he would draw out the toxins of spiritual abuse, of disillusionment, of disappointment with God and um, of, of every foul thing that's associated with that's been associated in, in misrepresenting Jesus to you and, and that he would pour in healing light into your heart, into your wounds, that he'd flush you fresh and clean from head to toe, body, soul, and spirit. And then maybe, maybe just maybe you could follow into his arms for a big hug. And uh, I'm going to just leave people there in that hug. And uh, maybe you, the others are feeling great today, <laughs> but maybe you could do that vicariously for someone and hold their pain in trust for them because they can't even look at it yet. That's good intercession. Get a hug from Jesus for them. Amen. Amen. Well, if God is alive at all and answers any prayers, I think I think those ones matter to him. And I'll trust that.